Dear friends, we're also instructed tonight from the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, question 61. So we're still on this topic. Last week we considered question 59 and 60, which gave us the doctrine of justification. How are we made right with God? And now we have question 61, a a question really of clarification uh, pertaining to the previous teaching. So question 61 says, why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Now you'll recognize the title of the sermon there, right? The title of the sermon is Sola Fide, which of course is Latin. I guess it just sounds so much better in the Latin, you know? Uh, But it just means faith alone, really. Uh, And uh, the, the question then is asking us, why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous. The answer given us is this, not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. Now, The teaching that the Catechism gives us here was already contained in the previous Lord's Day, which brings to our mind then, why this question? Uh, Last week, we considered question 60, which is, how are you right with God? And it used much of the same language as we have here. And the last clause of question 60 was, all I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Right, which very clearly teaches us that this gift of righteousness that God gives is a gift that he gives only to those who believe, to those who have faith. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. But now we have a question, as I said, of clarification. Why do you say that by faith alone you are right with God? So what is the occasion then for this question? Why this question? Well, as you know, my friends, this Catechism was written within its own particular context, historical context, I mean. And you know that the debate of the day in that time was with the Roman Catholics. Now, since we are not engaged so much in debate with Roman Catholics, perhaps we miss the importance of this question. But still, we actually owe a debt of gratitude to the Roman Catholics because they force us to think more carefully about the truth of the gospel and especially about this truth of justification. And i got to tell you, my friends, that even from my own thinking, in my own life, I don't believe I understood the doctrine of justification correctly until I encountered Roman Catholics. And I mean that very sincerely. In one sense, you might say I, I'm thankful for Roman Catholicism, if I can even say that. Right? Because it forced me to understand the doctrine of justification, the full biblical doctrine of justification. So again, I, I say I know that probably a lot of us don't have a lot of contact with Roman Catholics, especially with Roman Catholic theology. But tonight, we're going to, we're going to consider Roman Catholicism, especially because it helps us understand what Paul was trying to communicate. Because we understand better the Reformed doctrine I should say, the biblical doctrine of justification, when we see it over against the Catholic understanding of it, the Roman Catholic understanding of it. So that's the occasion then for this question. Because Zacharias or Sinus, what was the other guy's name again? Do you remember? 
Casper Olivianus, remember the two authors of our catechism? They lived in a context of Roman Catholicism. And so they gave us this clarification, and it's a beautiful clarification, it's a wonderful truth, and in the applications to this sermon, you'll see that this strikes at the very heart of the gospel, this question. And so it's a beautiful question for us to consider. Now, what is the issue then here? Well, because Roman Catholics would say we are justified by faith as well. Maybe you didn't know that tonight. But if you talk to Roman Catholics, oh yes, they believe that we are justified by faith. They would say that. They would insist on it. I was a little surprised myself to discover this. That Roman Catholics too have no problem saying that we are justified by faith. Well, of course, the the issue there is all in that word sola, right? Or alone. Why do you say that we are justified by faith alone? Because the Catholics would say, yes, we are justified by faith and by love, and by prayer, and by carefully obeying each of the Ten Commandments, you understand that they have now made faith just another good work. They've made faith something that God gives us as a gift, and by that good gift that God gives us, we are able to believe, and that believing is a good thing, right? That's a moral act. It's sinful not to believe in something that God teaches us, right? Now, by believing in God and the things that he teaches us, that is a good, that is a moral act, and God justifies us based on faith. We are justified by faith. And now I know all of you are sitting there thinking, that's not what we mean by justification by faith, is it? Now you see, right, the difference. And so we want to talk about that. Now, last week, you'll remember, we talked about my righteousness and his righteousness, or Christ's righteousness, You'll remember at that time, right, that we said that our justification is not based on my righteousness, on something good that I have done, but that it is based on the good works of what Jesus has done, and that is credited or reckoned to be mine. That is what we mean in the Bible language when we say justification. And that's why we glory in justification as at the heart of the gospel. Well, let's consider then, let's take this issue of what the Roman Catholics understand to be justification and how we ourselves understand it here in this church and in any Bible-believing church, and let's bring that to the Scriptures. Let's bring that question to the Bible. Again, something's not wrong, by the way, just because the Roman Catholics believe it, right? Something's not right just because we teach it. We want to bring it to the bar of the Scripture. Let's do that then. And let's first of all consider then this word, what does it mean when, we, when the Bible says to justify for anybody? What does that mean, even in, in general terms? What does that mean when we say to justify? In Romans chapter 4, we read that Abraham was justified. We read it in verse 2. And really that's the, the subject of the, the whole chapter there. In verse 5, he says it again. Justifies. We see this word repeatedly. What is meant by that word? To be justified. Now, to place this in the context of this question, then, with the Roman Catholics, the Catholics would come to us and say, well, justify, to justify anyone means to make them righteous. It is an inner transformation of our own heart and soul, whereby God, by the power of his own grace, makes us righteous. We are sinful, and God makes us righteous. It's a process of inner transformation. So the Roman Catholics would have us to understand justification. 
The Protestants, however, under the lead of the Protestant reformers then said, no, it is a declaration of what we are. The, the illustration I can give you, my friends, is if you think of a doctor and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you, know, you have diabetes or you have cancer, right? Or you have whatever kind of sickness you might have. He's making a declaration of what you are. He did not make you that, right? The, the doctor didn't give you the cancer or the mumps or, the, or the whatever you have, right? Whatever sickness it may be. He's simply declaring what you are. Now, a doctor can also do heart surgery on you, right? He can open up your chest cavity, and he can make you healthy again. He can repair a valve. He can cut out a tumor. The doctor can do all these things, can't he? He can remove a kidney stone. He can make you healthy again, right? You see the difference between what the doctor does when he gives you a diagnosis, a declaration of what you are, and what the doctor does when he goes within you, and he makes you right again. Whatever, the, whatever might be wrong in you, he can go in and he can make it right. The one is a process of inner transformation, we might call it. Let's call it surgery, right? And the other is a declaration or a diagnosis of what you are. Now, the Protestants have always said that the Bible means by justify that it is a declaration of what we are. And that it is not a process of inner transformation. Now, we believe in a process of inner transformation, we call that sanctification, don't we? Again, I know some words here, but we call that sanctification. It's not that we disagree with the idea of an inner transformation. We believe that as strongly as any Catholic. But we insist that when the Bible says to justify, it does not talk about heart surgery. It does not talk about a process of transformation. It talks about God's declaration that we are either righteous or condemned. So, that's the question, then, that I want to bring to the Bible. What does the Bible mean by the word to justify? Now, I've given you four texts here that I want to consider. The first one comes from the Old Testament, and it's especially interesting for us tonight because it's not a, a, a verse that is about salvation. It is not a verse that is using the word justify in the context of God's saving grace to us. It's just a word that the word justify used in normal society. So it's very interesting because this is the word that Paul chose to talk about God's saving act towards us. So Proverbs 17, verse 15, you can read that there. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now again, let me remind you of the question. We're, at, we're asking ourselves now, is that word justifies? Does that refer to a process of inner transformation? Or does it refer to a declaration? Now, my friends, if Proverbs 17 is using the word justify in the sense of an inner transformation, then why would it say that is an abomination to the Lord? You follow me there? The word must not, it cannot possibly mean an inner transformation because that would be something, very, something that God would look very kindly on. God's blessing would rest upon such a person who did that. So it must mean here that when it says he who justifies the wicked, it doesn't mean that he who takes the wicked person and through a process of discipleship transforms him into a righteous person. Such, a per, such an act would be very pleasing to God. No, this is talking about a judge who says to a guilty person, you're righteous, you're not guilty. Now that is an abomination to the Lord, right? Because that judge is not doing justice. 
He should declare that that person is what he is. That person is guilty. He should be declared guilty and he should be sentenced to the proper punishment. If a judge fails to do that, that is an abomination to the Lord. Now again, I just submit to you, my friends, and to your own judgment here, what the word justifies mean. Does it mean a process of inner transformation? Or does it mean a declaration? I move on to Luke 7, verse 29. Now we come into the New Testament, and we have here, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice. Now unfortunately there, our translators didn't translate the word justified there, but in the Greek, in the original Greek there, it is they justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now, again, what the larger story here is is not so important to us. I just want to focus on that statement there where it says, they justified God. Now, my friends, here it would be blasphemy to say that the word justify means a process of inner transformation. I don't need to say anything more about it, right? Clearly, God is in need of no inner process of transformation. Clearly, the word justified here means they declared that God was in the right. That's why our translators did a little paraphrase there, right? They acknowledged God's justice. In other words, they acknowledged that what God did was just. Clearly a declaration and not a process of transformation. I go now to 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16, where here it is not uh, God who is justified, but Christ. In 1 Timothy 3, we read by common confession Great is the mystery of godliness. He, that is Jesus, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated, as it says in our, in our translation, but the word there is justified in, probably more by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed, and the verse goes on. Again, what the larger context here is not so important to us, but we see that the word here, the word justified, is used to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, who again is in no need of a process of inner transformation. And so, my friends, I trust I've made clear to you and that the Scripture's made clear to you that the word justified is a declaration of what a person is that comes from a judge, a person in authority. The Roman Catholics are not correct when they teach us that justification is a transformation of a sinner to a person more righteous. On the contrary, the Bible teaches us that we are to understand that word justified as a declaration, and especially the declaration of a judge. Now, we have that in our own text. In Romans 4 and verse 5, we read this, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, notice here that the Bible says, uh, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Now, I'm going to say more about that in point number three. But notice the word credited there. His faith is credited to him as righteous. Notice that justify the ungodly doesn't mean that God takes an ungodly person and by the work of his spirit transforms him into a righteous, God-honoring, God-loving, Christ-centered person. That's not what it means there. Hence the word credited which is a word from the accounting world. We talk about credits and debits in the accounting world, don't we? And here God says his faith, and I'm going to say more about that in a minute as well, his faith is credited. Focus on that word credited, which again shows that the justification that's taking place here is a declaration of God on this ungodly person that he is righteous. It is not God transforming that person. It is God crediting righteousness to a person who in himself is ungodly. 
So four reasons I give you tonight, my friends, to show that the word justification is a declaration. I come now to point three, which is who is justified? Well, who is justified? We just considered Proverbs 17, where in the Old Testament, God says very clearly, he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And yet we have in Romans 4, in this chapter, this verse, verse 5, that God is the one who justifies the ungodly. So stay with me here now, congregation. God justifies the ungodly. Now here again, we have something that is directly contrary to this idea that God justifies the person that he transforms from sinner to righteous. And when that transformation, has, that process has begun and continues, God justifies that person because that's what they are. But Paul says that God justifies the ungodly. Solomon said, though, in the Proverbs, that if you justify the wicked, that is an abomination to the Lord. Here we have that same conundrum that we faced last week. How is this possible that God can declare someone righteous when they are ungodly? Well, my friends, this is the gift of righteousness that God gives, right? Remember last week we said that the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth and lived a faultless, sinless life. And that God, when a person believes the gospel for the first time, God lifts the record of Christ's righteousness, that perfect, spotless record. He lifts it off Christ. And he places that on the ungodly, on the wicked sinner. So that the sinner who is guilty in himself, and he remains so, he continues an ungodly person, he still sins, receives the gift of righteousness. Not his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now God looks at that sinner, and he sees the perfect righteousness, the spotless record of his own son. And he says, he pronounces from the judge from, the, from his judgment seat, not guilty. That's justification, my friends. Our catechism, catechism says, not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. For only Christ's satisfaction, remember he endured the punishment on our behalf, he satisfied the justice of God. Christ's satisfaction, his righteousness and holiness are my righteousness before God. So you see there's that transfer that happens. That Christ's righteousness is imputed or is credited, to use the words of the text here, to us when we believe in Jesus. Now, the Catholics want to say that when we believe in Jesus, God sees that faith And he's so pleased with it that he then justifies us, right? He then begins that inner process of, that inner transformation, process of transformation because there's something so valuable and so precious in our faith. But the authors of our catechism want to clarify that when we say we are justified by faith alone, it's not because our faith is so valuable. It's not because God looks at our faith and says, that's such a wonderful thing, I now pronounce you righteous. No, no, the catechism wants to say it's not because of the faith, but it's because of what faith takes hold of. My friends, this is why we say 
This is why the salvation comes to us, or justification comes to us, by faith alone. Because think about faith. Think about faith for a minute. If you th- what, if, what if God had said that justification is going to be by love alone? Or what if justification is going to be by hope? Or, or some other act, some other virtue of the Christian life that we practice? But see, the difference is that when God says that justification is by faith, faith is something that takes us out of ourselves. Right? That's the nature of faith. That it takes us out of ourself to take hold of another. That is the nature of faith. And that's why faith in itself is, a, is, a, is something that we exercise. Yes, it is something that we exercise. We put our trust in Jesus. But it's, it's not about the faith, is it? It's about what faith takes hold of. I want to say more about that in this next question, which in question in uh, number four, is faith our righteousness? Now here we might be led to believe that faith is our righteousness because our text said it twice. In verse five, it says, but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his or her faith is credited as righteousness. If you drop down to verse nine, he says the same thing. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Now again, my friends, this is the same question. Why does Paul use that expression that faith is our righteousness? It very clearly says it twice. This seems to rather support the Catholic idea, doesn't it? That God sees our faith and is so pleased with our faith that he then justifies us and declares us righteous. But again, this expression has to be understood in the light of Scripture. And in this context where Paul is so clear that our justification before God does not take place based on my own righteousness or based on anything that I have done, right? Paul says that repeatedly. In fact, that's really the whole point of this chapter. If Abraham, he says in verse 2, was justified by works, he has something to boast about. So if Paul is now turning around and saying that now we're justified by faith, that when we believe... That faith is something so precious and valuable to God that he now justifies, that, justifies us based on our faith and the value of our faith. Well, then it does seem that something we do brings God to justify us. And so, my friends, already we, we understand that we have to understand that expression that faith is credited to us as righteousness in a certain way. It's not faith. But it's what faith takes hold of. And that too, my friends, is a very scriptural idea. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, if you're in Romans, you can just turn back to chapter 1. You'll see that Paul gives us himself a clarification of what he means when he says that faith is credited to us for righteousness. If you look at Romans 1 and verse 17. Romans 1 and verse 17, For in it... And the it here is the gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Do you see it there? It's not the faith, but it's that righteousness, that faith receives, that is offered to us in the gospel, that faith takes hold of. That is our righteousness. So faith being credited to us for righteousness, it's not the faith that is the righteousness, but it's the faith It's the thing that faith takes hold of. That righteousness, it receives the gift 
of God's righteousness. Now, this is more, even more explicitly given us in Philippians 3 and verse 9. Such an important verse this is for our understanding of what justification is. And here Paul is talking about all the things that he did for God. You can see that in verse, uh, verse 4. He says, at verse 4 and verse 5, he talks about being circumcised on the eighth day. He's of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. In other words, Paul's talking about his own righteousness now. Paul made such rapid strides in his own righteousness. He says, as to the righteousness of the law, he was blameless. But he says in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. And in fact, he, uh, to drop down to verse 9, or at the very end of verse 8, notice he says, I count them all as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Now, what does that mean for Paul, that he gains Christ? Verse 9 gives it to us. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Now, there he explicitly says it, doesn't he? Not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law or derived from my own law-keeping. But that which is, but that righteousness, in other words, which is through or which comes to me through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So very explicitly then, doesn't he? Paul teaches us how to understand that expression. Faith is credited to me as righteousness. Not the faith, but the righteousness it takes hold of. And that, my friends, is the basis then of what our catechism says, right? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. But only Christ's righteousness is imputed to me. And I make that righteousness mine by faith alone. You see now the connection between what the catechism teaches and what Paul preached so many years before. My friends, the preachers in the Reformed tradition have loved this truth. This is, you might say, the truth for the preacher, right? Because preachers love to preach this part of the gospel. That faith is just an empty hand. In fact, children, I think in your notes, isn't there a picture of an empty hand? And that's what faith is. Just empty hand. Why? Because it's looking to receive something. There's all these expressions. Calvin said faith is an empty vessel. Isn't that beautiful? An empty vessel. An empty vessel. I mean, does anybody look at the vessel? Who cares about the cup it's in? It's all what's in the cup, isn't it? It's what faith takes hold of. Faith is an empty vessel. I I think Luther puts it even more graphically. He says, faith is a ring that clasps a jewel. And again, children, I think there's a picture of a ring on your notes. Faith is a, is a ring. Why? Because it's not so much about the ring. We don't, we don't know what he thinks about the ring, right? It's the jewel, the diamond, the ruby, the emerald that it's holding on to. In fact, the ring is really just there to highlight and to, 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 to present to us the beauty of that jewel. Because the, 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 the faith takes hold of Christ. And it's not the worthiness of the faith, but it's Christ. Louis Burkhoff He said, faith is an act of the soul going out towards its object and appropriating it. A beautiful expression. 
Such a beautiful expression. Faith goes out of itself towards an object. Thomas Boston, Scottish Presbyterian, he said, I take this faith to be the soul's constant traveling between the fullness that is in Christ and the emptiness, nothingness, misery, and poverty in myself. Isn't that a precious comment, my friends? Faith is that soul's constant... Is this your life, my friends? That constant traveling between the fullness that is in Christ and the emptiness that is in myself. That's what faith is. It goes out of myself and it takes hold of Christ. So that at the end of the day, it's not my faith that is my righteousness before God, nor anything else I do, but it is only the righteousness of Christ, given to me as a free gift, credited to my account, when I receive it by a true faith. Well, there's the truth of our catechism and the scripture which supports it. My friends, in my application, I'd first just like to mention this because I know that in the United Reformed Churches we've had this controversy over federal vision. This is my first point of application. I don't want to say much about this. I will say, though, that the United Reformed denomination has, uh, has had a study committee in 2010 that submitted a report on this, uh, this movement, the Federal Vision Movement. I printed out, or uh, Kathy printed out for me several copies on the book table, which if you're interested, you can pick up and you can read that report if you like. But suffice it to say, my friends, that the Federal Visionist in the United Reformed denomination and in other, it was never very big, actually, in the URC. I think it was more in the Presbyterian churches. Uh, but the Federal Visionist... Uh, began to use different terminology to describe our justification before God and terminology that seemed to blur this truth. Am I justified by the righteousness of Christ alone or do my works play some role in my justification before God? And our denomination rejected this movement. Rejected this movement. Because, my friends, uh, not because we, we, we like controversy or we like to, to make trouble or we like to be heresy hunters, right, and find people that we can pound down, right? But because, my friends, this truth is, so, is such at the heart of the gospel that any movement which is going to blur those lines, which is going to blur the distinction between justification and sanctification, Any movement which is going to use language, maybe they didn't intend this, but which is going to use language, which is going to somehow imply that anything I do counts for something with God. We reject that. And we must reject it, my friends. We reject it because of Paul's insistence in chapters like this over and over again that we can't stand before God in anything that we've done. Beneath the cross of Jesus is our only hope. And so we don't want to muddle this. And so we, we stick to, our, to the terminology that the reformers gave, have given us. That justification is really not by faith, is it? In, in one sense, that's, that's kind of an error to say justification by faith because we're justified by the righteousness of Christ alone, received by faith alone. Justification not by my own works. And so, my friends, I say that in all these controversies that arise, it really just comes down to this thing. It really is just this simple. 
Am I justified by my righteousness, either in whole or in part? Or am I justified entirely by the righteousness of Christ, by his satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness credited to me by faith only? That really is, is, is the dividing line. And, and, and there's, there's really nothing more to be said. It's either something of my own or it's all of Christ. My friends, I move to the second point of application, judgment day. We recognize that in the psalm that we read this, this evening, didn't we? That God is the one who tests the righteous. He's the one who tests the ungodly. We all recognize, in fact, I think this is why so many oh, atheistic-minded people are so uh, determined never to accept the existence of a deity, because they know that if there is a God, I am accountable to him, and I'm going to stand before him. And, of course, our society, uh, and not just our society, but people of all times and places, just reject that idea. But, my friends, we believe in God, and we believe that in, in, a, in a day that's not so far off, perhaps, we are going to stand before his judgment seat. And I ask you tonight, my friends, I ask you as human persons who know that that day is coming and that you're going to stand before him individually for yourself, how will you stand there? How can you stand before a God who doesn't just see what you did outwardly? I can see what you did outwardly. But this God sees directly into your soul. He sees the hidden thoughts and intentions, the sins that you don't want anybody to know about. He sees the hypocrisy of of our own souls that, that no one else can see. My friends, even for the preacher this evening, this is a distressing thought. But the truth of justification is that on that judgment day, God holds out to us a righteousness that is perfect in every respect. And my question to you this evening is, in whose righteousness do you want to stand? And of course, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? No matter if you're here tonight, my friends, and you know that you are not right with God, if you know you are an unbeliever this evening, I speak to you, of course, you need to hear this most of all. But even as believers, my friends, as believers in Christ, I ask you, in whose righteousness will you stand? And the glory of the gospel is that we can confess that I will stand in the righteousness of Christ alone. And that if I have to stand before the judgment seat of God, if I have to stand in his courtroom, and if any of my works, even my best works, if my prayers, if my church attendance, if my baptism and Lord's Supper participation, the best things that I do, if any of that has to stand As part of my record before God, I am lost eternally. And this is grounds, my friends, to rejoice before God our Savior, is that he gives to us, in the moment when we most need it, a righteousness that is absolutely flawless. Let me ask you this tonight. Maybe you say, well, I I know you don't say this, okay? But perhaps someone might say, I'm going to stand there based on my faith because I'm such a strong believer in God. No, you'll still be lost, won't you? Because your faith is is not perfect. You don't have perfect faith. It wavers. The righteousness of Christ is our record, and it's the only one we can take with us into God's courtroom.
I close the sermon this evening, my friends, by considering with you the empty hand of faith. The sermon tonight really is helping us to understand properly faith's role in our justification. And as I said, the preachers in the Reformed tradition love this subject. There's so many quotes like this, but I picked out two of them. The first one is from Arthur Pink. Let's read these together and then we'll, we'll close. So it says, faith is the one link between the sinner and the Savior. Not faith as a work, which must be properly performed to qualify us for pardon. Not faith as a religious duty, which must be gone through according to certain rules in order to induce Christ to give us the benefits of his finished work. No, but faith simply extended as an empty hand to receive everything from Christ for nothing. Reader, and now Pink, he addresses you directly, my friends. Reader, you may be the very chief of sinners. Yet is your case not hopeless. You may have sinned against much light, against great privileges, against exceptional opportunities. You may have broken every one of the Ten Commandments in thought, word, and deed. Your body may be filled with disease from wickedness, your head white with the winter of old age. You may have already one foot in hell. And yet, even now, if you but take your place alongside of the dying thief and trust in the divine efficacy or the divine power of the precious blood of the Lamb, you shall be plucked as a brand from the burning. God justifieth the ungodly. Hallelujah. If he did not, the writer had been in hell long ago. Oh, there's the language, my friends, of a a forgiven sinner, of a man who recognizes that faith is so wonderful, not because of anything in itself, but because of what it takes hold of. If it was not this case, this writer says, I had been in hell long ago. I trust, my friends, you can add your hearty amen to that. And then Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a preacher, a great, great preacher of faith in Christ. This was one of the themes of his ministry. But he says, faith is an empty hand. Yea, it is the filthy hand of the leprous sinner. And Christ puts his mercy into that black hand. Is there any merit in the hand? God forbid. Is there any efficiency to save in the hand? Oh no, my brethren, the hand which gives must have the glory, not the hand which takes. He who bestows the blessing must have the honor of it, not the faith by which we receive the blessing from him. My friends, I trust that's the language of your soul. I trust that in your uh, pious moments, in your most pious moments, you recognize that it's only because faith attaches me to Christ that I'm anything at all before God. May God bless these words to us. Let us pray. Lord, we draw near to you this evening hour, and what a precious subject given to us to consider this evening. Lord, what a delight it is to think about faith. What a delight it is to think about faith as that gold ring that takes hold of the jewel, which is Christ's righteousness. That empty hand that reaches forth, that leprous hand, as Spurgeon has described it, that reaches forth to take the gift of healing that empty vessel. Lord, all of our fathers, all of our, all the preachers we remember, they all had expressions for the glory and the beauty of the Savior as he's received by faith. Lord, I pray that this truth would be at the very heart of our life as a Christian and that we would never blur this truth, O God, that when we stand before you one day, the only hope we can possibly have 
is if we are clothed in the perfect and spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you will bless us then today to renew our faith in this work of Christ, to renew our faith in the gospel, to sign our name once again to our own death sentence, and to sign our name to this gospel, this covenant of grace, which teaches us that we can be right with you, not by obedience to the law, but by faith in our Savior. Lord, will you remember us then in your mercy. Bless the brother too who will speak to us. We pray, O God, that you will give us to see your work in this world and that we would praise and rejoice in your kingdom coming in many different areas of the world through the translation of your word. Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands and ask your blessing to be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn then in the red hymnal to number 459. Number 459. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 of number 459.
congregation, I'll dismiss you with the blessing, and then I ask Brother Michaels to come forward and, and speak to us of his work. Receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen. Brother Michaels. Good evening to all of you. I hope you can hear me. I'm going to use the pulpit mic here uh, this evening. And again, I want to, on behalf of my wife and I, we come here every year or two, and we live in Florida, where we work with Wycliffe Bible Translators, but we always look forward to coming here to Covenant Church. I want to just share a few things about Bible translation and our work with Wycliffe Bible Translators, but I want to read a passage, because I think this passage has to do with your congregation. It's a well-known passage. It's found in Hebrews uh, chapter 6, verse 10. And this is really speaking about covenant church. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Well, it was 38 years ago. We were born and uh, raised here in Kalamazoo, Michigan. But 38 years ago, we left Kalamazoo and went to work with Wycliffe Bible Translators in the country of Papua New Guinea, which has a large number of the world's languages. And when we started that work back in 1985, there were 3,500 languages in the world that had no written language and, of course, then no scripture. Now, there's about 7,000 languages in the world. And Bible translation has been going on really from the very start of the church. But not until real recently, in the last hundred years, has there been a concerted effort by the church to bring the gospel to all of the languages of the world. So we started in 1985 with 3,500 languages with no scripture started. And then we go past 38 years and we look back, what has happened in the world in these past 38 years? Well, today the number of languages that need Bible translation started has dropped to a little over 1,400 languages, which means that in the last 20 years, in partnership with churches and individuals around the world, there have been over 2,000 language communities in the world that now have had Bible translation started, and in most of those, there have been Bible translations completed. So we have a great uh, uh, reason to praise and thank God for the work that's going on in Bible translation. And your church is a major partner in that happening through your partnership in the work of the gospel through Bible translation. You know, people ask me, what's the most exciting thing that I see today in the work of Bible translation? And I really think it's two things. Number one, when Barb and I started, we worked in Papua New Guinea in administrative work. We didn't do Bible translation, but we worked alongside of Bible translators, and they were all doing New Testament Bible translations. In most cases, a few places we started Old Testament, 
but we started New Testament translations. But today, for me, the most exciting thing is to see that a large portion of the work that's going on right now is the translation of the Old Testament. So people are more and more having access to God's full canon, all of the words of Scripture being given to people. But that kind of work really is, takes long-term support and work. It's not something that's going to be done overnight. I think the second thing that encourages me about Bible translation is that more and more churches overseas are taking on the role of Bible translation in their own countries. A hundred years ago, when Wycliffe started, we were sort of the torchbearers. God's word needs to be delivered to all people in a language that they can understand. But today, over the last hundred years, this missionary enterprise that you've been a part of has taken hold. And if you read the, the missionary stories around the world today, you read about the story and the strength and the vigor and the, and, and the veracity of the church that's growing around the world. They're growing in churches that are strong or holding to the kinds of doctrines that are preached here in this church. And so over the last five or ten years, these churches in countries, these Protestant denominations, are coming to Wycliffe and saying, you don't need to send missionaries over to do this work. We have trained theologians. We have men and women that are strong in their faith. And we have men that have gone to college now and school, and we have the ability to get this work started. And that's so exciting to see that these emerging churches are strong and want to complete the work themselves. But they ask Wycliffe, we still need you to come along. You're the people with the linguistic skills. You're the people that know Greek and Hebrew. And we do our translations from biblical languages. So you have to know biblical Hebrew or Greek to do translation with Wycliffe. So we need you to come alongside and help us to make sure that our translations are accurate. And so there's a part that we can play, but the leadership of it is now more and more going in the hands of the churches overseas. So those things encourage us and bless us to see how the church is growing around the world. But it does take long-term support. Uh, It's one of the reasons why we devoted ourselves to long-term service with Wycliffe, because we know Bible translation is something that takes a very long time. Now, before I tell you a little bit more about the work, I'll just tell you that my job has changed in Wycliffe. For 15 years, Barb and I and our children worked with Wycliffe in Papua New Guinea. In 2000, our children uh, finished high school. We thought we would be in the States for a few years, but Wycliffe has repeatedly asked me to stay here in the United States. And for about 20 years, we spent our efforts really recruiting new missionary staff. Spent a lot of time on colleges, seminaries, looking for Christians, committed Christians that wanted to... uh, put their hand to the task of Bible translation. And, uh, but in the last few years, I started thinking, you know, I'm getting older. I'm not a young guy anymore. And I've had experience in overseas in leadership in our branch in Papua New Guinea. And for a, a number of years, I served as one of the vice presidents of Wycliffe here in the United States. And I thought I really should work on leveraging that experience and that training. So my job now is in the area of missionary care. We want missionaries to finish well. 
And we know that some of these missionaries have spent decades in Bible translation work. So I have about 50 families. I'm growing that number, maybe to 75 or 100 families. I'll be responsible for their missionary care as best I can in the areas where they work. So some of the idea of what I do is I work with new mission staff that are just going on the field, but I work with these veteran missionaries that have worked with Wycliffe for 50 and 60 years. And some of the issues that I, I work with these families have to do with things like family life. How do I help with my children's education when I go to these remote locations around the world? Sometimes it has to do with health reasons. You know, I'm in an area, it's, I'm struggling with my health. What kind of help, what can I do to make my, my sure that I can continue to work? Sometimes I have to counsel people in areas of finance. How are you spending your money? And what kind of support do you have coming in? Other times it's just simply emotional support. Helping people through the long, difficult job of Bible translation. But sometimes it's spiritual. People, at times, want to give up on this good work. And they're just like all of us, we struggle with sin. And so I have an opportunity to come alongside of them and encourage them in their Christian walk and to get them help when and where they need it. And sometimes people say, I need to change jobs. And they get to our age and they think, oh, maybe we should start thinking of retirement. Well, Barb and I are not planning on retiring, even though we're past retirement age. We believe that God still has work for us in this ministry, and we would like to continue in that. But I want to tell you a story about just two Bible translators that have been working long-term with Wycliffe. One is uh, Joe and Betty uh, Benton that work in Mexico. They started in that work over 56 years ago. They completed two New Testaments in Mexico. They're working on two Old Testament projects in Mexico. And I had an opportunity to call them a few weeks ago, a month, couple of months ago, and I asked them, what's your biggest challenge? What can we do to help you and continue to finish that work? And he said, well, Chuck, we don't have a car. They're not an aviation allocation. They're a, a, a car allocation. They can drive out to this village in Mexico. But they said, we have not had a car for nine years. I said, well, how do you get from the mission center out to your language community to do your work. They said, well, for nine years, Chuck, we've been, we've been borrowing cars. I said, for months at a time, you're in the village and you have to borrow a car? And what about the person that has the car? They said, well, Chuck, we just don't have the money for a car. It broke down nine years ago. And we don't have the funds to buy a car. So we committed to praying for that. And about three weeks later, I got a call from a Wycliffe a finance officer and they said, we have a donor that just contacted Wycliffe, and they want to give money to a missionary that's working in a Spanish-speaking country that's working on Old Testament translation and need a car. And they gave a gift to Wycliffe for $25,000. Now, last week, I got a call from that missionary family with a picture of them standing next to their brand-new car that they're going to have for the rest of their time in Mexico. And I tell you, it was like a kid in a candy store. They were, they were giddy. After having a vehicle, after so many years, a dependable vehicle that will allow them to continue their work 
in Bible translation in Mexico. So thank you for that partnership that you have to, just to enable this family to continue and finish strong. And then there's Matt and Gail. Matt and Gail work in some of the most remote places of Indonesia. They've been there for almost as long as we have, almost about 38 years. They started when they were young, their children are all grown. They're continuing on. They, again, finished two New Testaments and are working on two Old Testaments. But they have health issues. And, and uh, the husband said to me a month or so ago, I'm not sure we're going to finish this work. My wife is tired. She needs extra health care. What are we going to be able to do? He said, we have probably eight to ten years of, of work left. And he said, I don't think we're going to be able to continue to go out to the very remote places of Indonesia and Papua, the, the province that they're in, to con complete this work. So I have a chance to come alongside of this couple and talk about how could that happen, maybe through the use of, of satellite technology and some, uh, some computer dishes, maybe through the use of remote technology he could do his work remotely, maybe him coming back to Indonesia every three or four months and staying for a few weeks, maybe we could finish that. And it was sort of like, oh, Maybe we can. Maybe we don't have to give up on this work. So that's the kind of work that I'm involved in, just coming alongside and enabling our staff to complete the work of Bible translation that they set out to do. And then, Barb, what does my wife do? Well, like I said, for about 20 years here in the U.S., we did recruiting. So I would just say if any of you still want to join in the enterprise, please contact us. But Barb works with people that want to volunteer or do internships. We have a lot of college students that need internships. Could be in teaching, it could be in finance, it could be in government relations, public relations, all kinds of areas. And they can do those internships with Wycliffe, some stateside and some overseas. So some kids want to do internships for a summer or maybe a year. And Barb works with people that are applying as interns. And then we have lots of volunteers, young people, but primarily people my age. Okay, they retire, they've, they've built a, a business, maybe they have some skill, and they think, you know, for a year or two, maybe I'd like to serve and do something. Maybe they don't have to raise support. And so they say, what can I do? Well, again, Barb's job with Wycliffe is to ha help those people through the applications and then finding a place for those volunteers and those interns can place into our work. We have work that needs to be done, and we need people to help join us in that work. So that's what we're doing right now, and it's what your church is supporting when you send your gifts and when you pray, helping more people join in the work and then helping care for those people so that they can finish well and complete the job a Bible translation. And I think as this congregation joins us in this work, I think you join us for the vision and the reality that we know that someday this text from Revelation 7, 9, and 10 will come true. After this, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number from every nation 
from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's our goal in Bible translation, is to deliver the good news of Jesus Christ as accurately, as clearly as we possibly can, so that people have access to all of God's word, so they too will hear the good news of Jesus Christ and hear this message of salvation, justification, by faith alone, receiving and taking hold of this great gift of the righteousness of Christ. So it is just a joy for us to be back here to hear the preaching of the gospel as we did tonight. What a blessing it is for us. And again, we thank you for your partnership in that gospel. So thank you so much for your prayers and your finances that keep us in our work. Yes. Oh, well, they could do things like teaching. People could teach in one of our missionary schools. Finance, we need administrators that are willing to come along. Construction workers. Um, so we have people that do all those kinds of things. Um, trying to think of some of the other more practical things that people can do. Sometimes people want to say, we raised a successful family. We're willing to be dorm parents for a dorm school and a missionary enterprise. Uh, but really, if someone has the skill and ability, I would just say there's probably a place that we could use that. But probably the largest ones are in the area of management, finances, teaching, construction, those kinds of things. But really, it's pretty open to what you could do. I think the, the, the important thing is the willingness to step forward and say, here am I, send me. No. No, I took, a, I took a linguistic class when I joined Wycliffe, and they said, Chuck, you're not really real good at linguistics. They said, you know the scriptures, but you have a hard time distinguishing between the B's, the T's, and the D's. And they said, so you probably shouldn't pick Bible translation. So there's a large number of jobs that need to be done without people with linguistic schools, skills. So you've got to support the team that's out there. And that's what other people can do without those skills. Yeah. You're welcome, and thank you again for allowing us to share.